Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. You want to talk about walking in the door with three strikes. I was young. I was a woman. And I worked at a company called Namaste Solar. (laughs) They just thought I was nuts. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Warrior, welcome back to this, the final week of our series highlighting women in leadership in the renewable energy industry uh, as a part of this Women's History Month. But you know what? Let's be honest. This has been a tough month for everybody. So I just want to call it what it is. And, uh, you know, I think with respect for everyone else out there, I am super grateful if you're taking a moment in your lockdown, uh, wherever you are uh, globally, as we prepare to fight this, uh, this pandemic together. I am I'm really grateful and honored for the, the myriad ways that we've been able to interact. And I want to let you know that our team here at Suncast is thinking all about different ways that we can help bring community together, support you, and to just encourage each one of you as you are trying to deal with your own, maybe it's your own little version of hell right now at home with everyone and going crazy stuck inside. Be that as it may, one of the ways that we do try to help is by bringing you week in and week out stories that you can relate to, ways that you can touch base internally with where you're at on your journey, looking through the lens and the eyes of someone else who's respected and admired in our industry, who has gone before you in some way, building their own career or business. I'm really, really grateful for my friend Tara Doyle, who introduced me to today's guest, Amanda Bybee. And before I began conversations with Amanda, I didn't know much about uh, her life and work. And I must tell you, uh, as you'll no doubt have recognized, this is part one. I was engrossed by Amanda's story. She has such a phenomenal uh, background and journey to get to where she is today. Uh, We learn all about uh, the Amicus O&M Cooperative, as well as her time at Namaste Solar, and even back to the early days of Solar Austin and the early, early push to get renewable energy and solar onto the agenda in Texas. I just have so much admiration and respect for Amanda uh, after this interview. And Tara was so right to insist that I get to know Amanda better. And I am honored to be able to provide you with this part one of the interview. And we'll be following the part two on Thursday. And I just wanted to say before we head into the conversation that if you are struggling right now, whatever that may may be, if it is with how to work from home or what am I going to do with my career right now, or I've just lost my job and I'm not sure what step to take next, know that uh, we are here for you. Uh, I would love to have a conversation, even if it's just over email. You can email me, Nico, at my suncast with your questions, concerns, uh, things that you would like for us to touch on. If you noticed, last week we did a quick LinkedIn Live. Uh, it wasn't quick, it was about an hour, where Etienne Lecomte and another friend, Mike Silvestrini, both who've been guests on the show, joined me for LinkedIn Lives. We would like to be able to bring more live recordings to you via LinkedIn as well as we're thinking about how else we can interact with you virtually and support the community moving forward in this difficult time. So I welcome you. I recognize this is a bit of a longer intro than typical, but I welcome you to give your input. And if you're not already on our email list, I would really urge you to join our email list because that's one of the ways that I'm going to be able to communicate with you better. The things that we're trying to do that we feel might help serve and edify and uplift this community in this very difficult time. So I really just want you to know that from the bottom of my heart, I created Suncast and we've perpetuated this podcast for the last four and a half years because we genuinely do care about the trajectory that we are all on as a, as a society to 
effectuate something massive with which is the transition uh, away from fossil fuels to renewable energy and to help you individually think about uh, how you can grow your profession your business your career uh, your interaction with others i believe more now more than ever your network is your net worth so please reach out you are a part of this network and i am a part of yours i want to hear your voice and i welcome that voice as we try to figure this out together Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Amanda Bybee, the founder and president of Amicus O&M Cooperative. This is part one, and we've got tons of other stuff at mysuncast.com that you can go listen to if you are looking for binge-worthy uh, episodic listening. Subscribe in your podcast player of choice. But for now, join me as we dive into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. I've been reflecting on a lot of things for this interview, trying to come up with some fresh stories for you. And my, like, really, like, what do I, what have I taken away from each of these life experiences that we're going to kind of talk about? And what I've really taken away is the people, the relationships, and finally, the understanding that success is not defined by business metrics. And there's all these cliches about, uh, you don't live to work, you work to live, you know, stuff like that, that uh, takes on so much more meaning as you get older and as you cease to define yourself by revenue or profit. And really, as I look back at my, even my formative experiences with Solar Austin campaign, when I was fresh out of college, it's, it's the friendships that grew out of that, that I've taken with me. Yes, I'm proud of the work we did. Yes, the work is critical, but it's not what I take away with me. And it's, it's such a shift, you know, in the way that you define success. It goes along with the whole concept of measuring what matters and, you know, not just looking at these conventional metrics and KPIs to say, I am successful today because I made a sale or onboarded a new member company. I am successful today because I helped improve someone's life or I got to have a really amazing heart to heart with my kid. It's revolutionary. It, it changes your whole definition of what you're chasing in life. I have goosebumps. That was amazing. I would have waited as long as it took to get to that synthesis. If that doesn't make the hair stand up on your arms, then I would ask you to check your pulse, Solar Warrior, because today uh, you're going to have a chance to really tap into a career, an opportunity to kind of peel back a layer into reality of what it's like to grow with an industry and grow as a human, uh, as a leader. Today, I'm honored to have my new friend, Amanda Bybee on Suncast. Amanda is a true solar warrior. Uh, I don't know if she identifies as such, but she's certainly a pioneer. And I know that warrior is a term that resonates with some and doesn't with others. But Amanda is someone that has been recommended time and time again for us to have here on Suncast. And I am stoked, Amanda, that you're joining us today. As am I. Thanks for having me. Indeed. So hat tip to our dear friend and mutual confidant, Tara Doyle at PVEL who herself is a pioneer and uh, someone who's pulled herself up by her bootstraps. So for those who are unfamiliar, Amanda is founder, co-founder of Amicus O&M Cooperative. Her, her work in the solar industry is deep and goes back uh, much further than mine, in fact. So we'll talk today a bit about how she sort of groped around in, uh, in the darkness trying to find her way into uh, a career that would be satisfying all the way back to 2003. I think that we're going to probably step into some stories about, as we both refer to it, the idea that uh, at some point in your career, you get to touch the garment of some of the icons in the industry. And then <laughs> and then one day you turn around and all of a sudden, like, like you, Amanda, you're, yourself are on a pedestal of sorts and folks are looking at you and saying, hey, how did you do this? So we'll explore some of that today. For those, uh, again, unfamiliar, Amanda uh, was involved in the early days of solar and not just in the U.S., but also in Texas. We'll talk about that. She had a stellar career at Namaste Solar. And uh, I want to dig into what uh, what that uh, has helped her uh, sort of unpack in her career. I could go on and on. We'll certainly connect to a lot of the things that have driven Amanda 
in her career. But Amanda, I'd like to start back in 2003. You you were a, a double major in undergraduate. You're trying to figure out where where do I want to step into a career? And as you told me in a, in a separate conversation, you look at the world through the lens of a long line of dominoes. I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> well, that belies my love of table games. But yes, as I was getting out of college, as we all do, looking for my place in the world, I thought to myself, I need to work on a career. I need to work in, a, in an industry that is improving people's lives. So what are the greatest problems? If you line them all up as dominoes, what are the dominoes at the front of the line that underlie every other problem? And at the time, my answer to that question was energy and education. You know, as I thought about education, I realized that um, though I had long harbored aspirations of becoming a teacher or a college professor, I actually wasn't that interested in pursuing a teaching route. I wanted to change the system. I wanted to work on it at, at a much higher level. But I also knew that in order to have credibility to change the system, I would need to start as a teacher and that it would be a long journey before I felt like I was able to make the kind of impact I was aiming to make. And I was impatient and I didn't want to take 20 years to get there. So then I thought about energy and uh, it so happens that there was a job open at a local nonprofit organization called Public Citizen that ironically enough was uh, the job was about fighting emissions from backup diesel generators. So mind you, this is shortly after Y2K when we thought the whole world was going to come crashing down due to a glitch in the computer programs. How ridiculous that is in hindsight, right? But this proliferation of backup diesel generators, which are very dirty and poorly regulated, and were now installed all over the urban areas in Texas, we were concerned that people would use those during peak times of the summer when electricity prices were peaking and there were potential brownouts being threatened to, to make sure that they didn't lose power. The problem being, of course, that if cities violate the Clean Air Act standards for too many days in a given year, they lose highway funding and air quality suffers. Uh, so we were concerned about uh, the, the utilization of this new fleet of backup diesel generators. And when I was hired on that job, I didn't even know what a backup diesel generator looked like. So my boss sent me out in the car with a camera and he said, go drive around behind a bunch of office buildings and take pictures and I'll show you what they look like, which is a super sketchy assignment for a 26 year old, <laughs> or 23 year old young woman to be driving around in a rental car, taking pictures behind office buildings. I'm sure that raised eyebrows on security footage. Uh, but I learned what they were, and uh, we made a little bit of headway in Texas at regulating the emissions. And it it turned out that that you know once that grant was used up, we turned our attention to promoting renewable energy. And my boss at the time, who was a icon in Texas politics, his name is Tom Smitty Smith. He's about five foot tall and very grizzled and hairy and jolly and ferocious all at the same time. He hatched this idea with several other activists and business people in Austin to launch the Solar Austin campaign. And that idea was to nudge the city council of Austin, which is the board of directors of the municipally owned Austin Energy, to set some big renewable energy goals and start a solar rebate program so that we could attract the growing solar industry to Austin and create something of a cluster. And so it was very much an argument based on economic development, not on environmentalism or feel-goodism. And uh, I said, you know, Smitty, that's, that's distributed generation. That, that's really more in the vein of what I've been working on. You should assign that to me. And so I got to work on the Solar Austin campaign, and we were successful helping uh, encourage Austin to set some big goals. And we launched the first solar rebate program in the state of Texas in 2004. That is amazing. Uh, what a wild ride, 18 months straight out of school to be involved in two fairly fundamental foundational campaigns in the early 2000s to help 
Texans liberate themselves from regulated energy. It was a time as well, uh, for those unfamiliar, that Texas was going through deregulation. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of conversation around what does the new world look like when it's not sort of centrally owned, controlled uh, generation, distribution, transmission. Gosh, what a powerful moment in time where, in contrast, a lot of folks might look at sort of the birth of, and a lot of folks and do, in fact, do look at the birth of modern solar taking place kind of exclusively uh, on the coasts, right? California, New Jersey, namely those two markets, uh, because PPA is proliferated there. But here is a young college grad uh, finding her way into leadership positions. I want to point out, you know, what's interesting about the industry that you jumped into uh, is that power in Texas, uh, power as an industry, energy, is an almost entirely and has been for eons, uh, male dominated industry, really? tall guys, black suits. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and here you are as a, as a, you know, young woman in her twenties. Uh, what was your, uh, what was your feeling of reception or how did you navigate that? Did you have mentors in the industry that you looked up to other than Smitty or, or how did you kind of navigate that world? Oh, absolutely. I do have a funny story though, about the tall men in dark suits, when I was advocating for emission controls on these diesel generators, I drove up to Dallas one day for a hearing at the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. And I was, I got my very first speeding ticket on my way there. So I was running late and I was kind of flustered. And I came in and I went to do my, my testimony to the TCEQ. And afterward, I was surrounded by tall men in dark suits who worked for Cummings and Caterpillar and all the, the like heavy equipment industry. And here I am this young bright eyed, bushy tail <laughs> woman uh, advocating for con emission controls on their equipment. And they were like, who the hell are you? And it was kind of a almost comical moment because it felt cartoony to me. I don't remember mm. feeling overly intimidated by that because I felt really confident about what we were presenting on, but uh, it was kind of a, a moment of, huh, you are all very tall, aren't you? <laughs> I guess for context, how tall are you? 5'4". Five 5'4", four. Five four, yeah. We're, 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 we are exactly the same height. Most people uh, who, who know me realize how uh, remarkably short I am in person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, Your I have a tall character. Giant That's right. So, yeah. That's exactly. Um, well, but to your question about the, the mentorship, I, I have to give a shout out to the team of people that represented Solar Austin. Under no circumstance would I take any credit for that without mentioning them, because it, it truly was a team. We met, my goodness, once a week for 18 months to make this thing happen. And wow. uh, certainly Smitty was a big part of that, as is his wife, Karen Haddon, but Mike and Susan Sloan, uh, who at the time ran a consulting firm in the renewable energy space, and Mike was the head of the Texas Wind Coalition. And Susan went on to work at AWEA, and she still works at the American Wind Energy Association to this day. Wow. So they're powerhouses in renewable energy. Mike spent hours educating me on how utilities work and how to integrate renewable energy responsibly. Um, he's a brilliant mind uh, in and of himself. Mm. You should interview Mike and Susan at some point. I was just thinking, I'd love to get them on the show. That's yeah. fantastic. Alan Wolf, who was a former businessman that had led a very interesting software company in the late 1990s, early 2000s, which was a huge part of Austin's economy at the time. He defined himself as a clean energy evangelist. And he, mm. he was my barometer in those meetings for when we were veering too far off topic or when we were being inefficient he started fidgeting. So Alan taught me how to run an efficient meeting, which is probably one of the greatest skills you can acquire in your mid twenties. And, and so that group of people, along with many others over the years, really did accomplish something cool. And I think that's one of the reasons that SunPower has a presence in Austin was because of our efforts in 2004 and inviting all the solar companies who are looking for expansion opportunities to come see what Austin had to offer, to be part of growing that cluster. And um, that was when they announced their their plans to have a, an office there. Wow, that is so cool. So this is like pre-PowerLite, uh, SunPower merger. Did you get, did, did you get folks like uh, Suge and 
Jigger and some of the folks that were leading big companies like Sun Edison there at the time as well? We did. So my Suge story, because everyone in the industry has one, right, <laughs> was that we invited him to come. Uh, Mike Sloan, who I just mentioned, has known Dan for a long time. So we got Dan to come out and they said, hey, Amanda, would you go pick Dan up at the airport and, and drive him around to these meetings we have set up for him? And I, in my 24-year-old glory, was like, oh, I am not a chauffeur. And they <laughs> looked at me and they said, you're being an idiot. You will get to drive Dan Sugar around in a car for several hours today, which means that you will have him as a captive audience. Take advantage of that opportunity to talk with him and pick his brain and learn as much as you can from this man who is doing great things in our industry. And I looked down at the ground and I said, oh, right. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so I did. I picked Dan Sugar up at the airport. I held a little sign and I drove him around uh, Austin that day. And we, I think we had him on a panel with the mayor of Austin talking about what we were trying to accomplish here. I actually found that picture just the other day. I was going through some old files. Oh, you got to share that with us. I will. It's pretty low res, but it's a good, it's, it was a fun memory. I did meet Jigger at the time. I had a phone call with him. I remember so distinctly sitting in my office, listening to this man go on and on about these PPAs. And I was like, you know, I was making affirmative noises and nodding my head as if I understood. But it was clear to me that he was onto something um, and that this guy was was definitely motivated and passionate about this idea. So you, young and energetic, making strides at this point in the industry, unbeknownst to you, you're being introduced to and, and sort of becoming revealed to you that you're being placed in the presence of folks that are really moving the industry, like so many uh, of, of, I'll say, of us. But you decided to press pause, got married, took a slight detour. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So got married in 2004. And my husband and I were talking about our desire to have an adventure before we settled down. So at one point in time, we had figured we would take, uh, we would save our money for a year and then go traveling for a year and just explore the world. Pitched this idea to my dad. And he was like, that's a terrible idea. You're going to have this gap in your resume. Don't do that. And then my husband was running a catering company at the time with a dear friend of ours. And the cousin of the dear friend called and said, Hey, I'm opening a restaurant and nightclub on the Island of Anguilla. We said, Angua, huh? And looked it up on the map. And it's this tiny speck of an Island in the British West Indies, right where the Caribbean islands turn. And they start, they go from being an East West chain to a North South chain. It's right at the elbow across the strait from St. Martin. Uh, he was, he wanted Chris to join uh, my, my husband's a chef. So he wanted Chris to be the chef de cuisine or the sous chef uh, to his master chef. And uh, they offered that I could run the events and catering side of the shop. So we picked up and moved to Anguilla, much to the dismay of my friends who had invested all that time and energy <laughs> educating me about renewable energy. Mike was like, what I'm sure Mike Sloan was not happy with that decision. No, they were not happy, <laughs> but they understood everybody needs. To, to have those adventures, right? Indeed, indeed. So from from there, I think safe to say, uh, when you returned from the Caribbean and aforementioned adventure, is uh, really where your sort of the the roots started to dig deep. Uh, as I recall, you were an early employee at Meridian, one of the early installer companies in Texas, and then something led to you uh, again picking up. Uh, and moving. Tell me about what, what inspired the move to Colorado and ultimately you being the co-owner of one of the most well-known uh, companies in our industry. Indeed, uh, one who uh, was able to sort of snag rooftop photos with uh, then President Obama. <laughs> Tell me about that story. Sure. Yeah. So working at Meridian was eye-opening for me because I had previously really been coming at renewable energy from a policy perspective at, at Public Citizen. And it wasn't until I started working at Meridian that I actually put together that solar is a construction trade. And that may be really silly to some, but I, I just hadn't really thought through the, the nuts and bolts of how solar is actually installed on roofs. And so I was like, oh, yeah, this is a whole different thing. And I had worked pretty closely with Andrew during the campaign and 
uh, we had a great working relationship. So I got to get my hands in all sorts of things that I would otherwise not have gotten my hands into. It was a whirlwind, I don't know, six or eight months that I worked there. We were really, <laughs> to some degree, biding time before we could take off on our honeymoon once the weather got warmer. But it really did give me an opportunity to learn about the business side of industry. And I thought to myself, I like this. I like this in some ways better than the nonprofit angle because we don't have to write grants and sing for our, our funding that way. We, as long as we're selling a product that people will buy, we have a lot of freedom as a business. And so that is what really, I think, set me on a, a business-based trajectory as opposed to nonprofits or governmental work. So then we did the uh, our honeymoon. We did a three-month road trip around the Western United States with our dog, camped out the whole time. And we had already decided that we were ready to leave Texas and that we wanted to live in a place that had four seasons and that was full of natural beauty. And so we settled on Colorado and my husband and I had each applied to advanced education programs. I had applied to the University of Boulder's MBA program and he had applied to Johnson and Wales University. And we came up to Denver to start off our road trip and, and checked out those universities. And then we headed West and we just immersed ourselves in nature for three months, which was a remarkable chapter in our lives and in time. Yeah. I recommend that to everyone. <laughs> All right, Warriors. So you know that high demand charges can ruin a good commercial solar cell. But what if you could offer your clients 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth? That's right. A tenth the cost of installing a battery. You can now do that with DemandX a new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy. Check it out at extensibleenergy.com and read the three case studies on how DemandX significantly reduced demand charges and increased ROI without batteries. As a Suncast listener, you can also get a free demand charge analysis at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. What do you have to lose? Crunch the numbers and see for yourself how Extensible Energy's inexpensive DemandX software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. Hey, Warrior, I bet you're already aware of CPS America's dominance in CNI with over 30% market share. But did you realize that they also shipped 500 megawatts of utility scale 1500 volt inverters in 2019? Their unique design flexibility makes them the only company with the ability to eliminate DC combiners in the field. And their DC to medium voltage balance of system bundle allows for as much as 40% reduction in costs. But wait, there's more. With string inverters increasingly used in utility applications, CPS is infusing smart tech innovations to drive down costs along the value chain from DC generation to AC delivery. If you'd like to find out what other cost stack reduction CPS can bring to your C&I and utility projects, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. You know, I experienced this uh, and I, I, I listened to folks describing their 20s. They're caught in this angst of the desire to prove themselves, the, the need to find the thing, we'll put in quotes, uh, that they're going to sort of bear down on and, and become a professional at, and they miss an opportunity in their 20s that they'll never re-get, recapture. We know this now as adults in, in our 30s and 40s with children, which is it doesn't matter how many times you screw up, but you got to take chances. And there's so much to see of the world. I, I actually felt some of the, some of those listening know my story. I went to the Peace Corps. I traveled to California, which was a lifetime, lifelong dream. I traveled to Europe. Uh, studied abroad. I did all these things that were totally like different from what I was told was my my destiny, uh, and it forever enriched my life. In fact, led to me meeting my wife. But what I want to get to is that actually, I, I often felt guilty going to the Peace Corps because I felt like it maybe in some in some way set me back. Uh, I had I had colleagues who were in their job; they were becoming managers, they were sort of moving up the ladder, as it were. Uh, but I was developing lateral skills and the ability to kind of live and work from anywhere, which now we both know obviously served me. What do you feel like, uh, just reflecting back on that, your 20s allowed you that you're grateful for? There is no substitute for travel in terms of broadening your worldview and broadening your capacity as a human being. 
and to see the world, to see how other people live, to, to, to look for opportunities to be of service as you travel, I think is one of the greatest life experiences we could ever have. I am so grateful that we took that time in our twenties to go do that. You know, we knew, we knew we wanted to have a family, but we also knew that we weren't ready to do that right away. And I was pretty young when I got married, I was like 24. Mm. So it also gave me an opportunity to really explore the world with my husband, which I think they say, if you can travel together for that long, it bodes really well for the relationship long-term. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed we it does. And I'll- smelly for a good chunk of the months that we were uh, camping out. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many stories from camping. I'll, I'll love to share with you one day when we're sitting, sitting at a bar stool. Yeah. Kind of take me back then to 2006. This is, you know, for those unfamiliar, uh, even the California market, SB1, now uh, famously the sort of the solar legislation that sparked the residential solar movement in the U.S. that we now enjoy. You guys were in Colorado with a, a slightly different version of reality in terms of how solar was going to be grown. Help me understand how how you got involved with Namaste and why that led to an 11-year career at one company, which is practically unheard of in the solar industry right now. Sure. So Coloradans had passed Amendment 37 in 2004. It was the 20th state in the country to establish a renewable portfolio standard, but the first one to do so by voter initiative. That was a pretty powerful thing. You know, it wasn't just the legislature saying this is a good idea. It was the voters of Colorado passed Amendment 37. I forget the margins, but it was a pretty resounding affirmative that this was a direction we wanted to go as a state. And so I landed in Denver while the rulemaking was still taking place at the Public Utilities Commission. And uh, I had been plumbing my, uh, my, my network for leads for jobs here in Denver. And uh, somebody mentioned this PUC hearing was coming up. It was going to be a big one. So I, I rode my bicycle to the Public Utilities Commission building in downtown Denver and pulled a blazer out of my backpack to put on and, and look semi-professional. And I went into this hearing room expecting to meet the who's who of the Colorado solar industry. From my days at Solar Austin, the way we worked it was whenever we had a city council hearing, we would just line everybody up and say, okay, you talk about jobs. You talk about broader economic development. You talk about environmental impact. You talk about, you know, whatever. And everybody had an assignment, but everybody showed up and had their three-minute spiel. So I walk into this room fully expecting that. And as the parade of speakers went on, I was really surprised at how few solar companies got up and spoke. And then this very earnest young man took the microphone and started talking. And I was like, wow, this guy, this guy is sharp. He knows his stuff. After the meeting, I went and introduced myself to him. And it turned out that that was Blake Jones, one of the co-founders of Mount mm-hmm. Solar. And so we started talking. Uh, I met, I came up to Boulder and had my interview with the three co-founders, these really cute white pants to what I thought was just a lunch, like informal meeting. And the office that they were in was under construction at the time. And turns out they wanted to sit and have a conversation in this construction zone. So they go and they grab this folding chair with the totally dirty and they kind of brush it off and they, they look at me in my white pants and they're like, uh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, that's all right. You know, it's solar is a construction industry as I've learned. Uh, so we started talking and they weren't ready to hire anyone because the programs hadn't kicked off. We were still in the rulemaking and they're like, we don't have any revenue yet. So we can't, we can't really afford to hire you, but we want to keep talking. So we did, we kept talking and I ended up joining the company in January of 2006 which was right when the rebate program was supposed to kick off. Uh, it turned out the rebate program didn't kick off till March, but they, they hired me anyways. And it was such an exciting time. These programs released so much pent up demand, the Denver Boulder area. It, I think it was slower to trickle out to other parts of the state, but man, we were busier in a one arm paper hanger. We were, we, it was all we could do to answer the phone. I mean, there were points in time where we had to apply a moratorium on site visits because our sales guys were booked out like eight weeks, several per day, 
going to people's houses to, to check them out for solar. Not only was I joining a solar company right as the dam was breaking and just all the intoxicating success that, that was flowing within that, I joined up with these visionary business people who had a concept for an employee-owned company that not only cared about what it did in the world, but how they did it. And so I joined the company on day one as a co-owner. I, I bought in, you know, I, I had equity in the company and then I got to help create everything that Namaste became like all of our processes, all of our policies, all of our crazy cultural things. And it was really the, the, the defining experience of my career. Uh, I, I can't imagine another company that is that, that's as exciting and as fulfilling and as challenging as Namaste Solar was. Um, and you mentioned I was there 11 plus years, but in that time I got to do so many different things. You know, I started out, I was the fifth person on payroll. Um, when you're a company of five, obviously everybody does everything. Uh, so I was bookkeeping and answering the phone and doing the policy thing and setting up regular meetings you know, between the industry and the utility. I had my fingers all over the place. And then as we started to grow, I think that first year, you know, we started the year with three, the three co-founders. And by the end of that first year, we were 20, which was just astronomical growth. And we had started hiring at least a little bit of specialized roles. By that point, we had a bookkeeper who actually knew what she was doing, uh, which was a relief to me since I was just mumbling along. And I ended up going into sales. And at the time, residential sales was a pretty technical sales job. You know, the people who wanted solar were engineers and in our case, scientists at NOAA. And they wanted to know about the quality of the power coming off of the inverters and the sine waves. And, you know, it was very techy, tech heavy, as opposed to today when sales is much more of a financial sales job. But yeah, it was a really exciting time. Then I started working with builders to integrate solar into new home construction. And <laughs> you want to talk about walking in the door with three strikes. I was young. I was a woman. And I worked at a company called Namaste Solar. <laughs> they just thought I was nuts. It was such a cool thing. We were. I worked with a whole lot of custom home builders as well as semi-production home builders to integrate solar during the construction phase that was such an exciting and cool concept to have a recurring revenue stream from the same builder right. and to be able to educate architects and builders on how to do this effectively and you know, keep the cost as low as possible and get solar into these new neighborhoods that were being developed. You've climbed the, the virtual ladder there from fifth employee to vice president over an 11 year tenure, which is remarkable uh, in and of itself. I'd love to hear from you as you began to grow the company from you know, five to 175 people at the time that you left. What were the key elements that you looked for in new team members? How did you think about hiring and growth at a time where growth was explosive? And, and I imagine and sometimes it was just kind of like, we need butts and seats. But there was a, I know from our conversations that there was a very, very uh, core element of culture. Help talk to me about culture and how that informed your hiring decisions. Oh, Namaste is a, has always been a company that's very focused on culture. And in the beginning, in those first years, we very intentionally hired generalists. As a startup company that was growing so rapidly, we couldn't predict exactly what we would need in the next weeks, the next months. So we hired really smart people who were committed to the vision, who were committed to the industry, and who were willing to do whatever it took. I love that hiring strategy because it's very much focused on the person as opposed to the skill set. And in hindsight, over time, as most companies do, we became more specialized. We were hiring an IT person who had IT expertise. We were hiring salespeople that, that brought a craftsmanship to the art of sales. And, and those were novel to us at the time. I think that we lost something along the way from not hiring generalists. And it, it's a it's a common cycle that companies will go through. Generalists work really well in a startup. Generalists don't work as well when you get to sort of a mid-size 
And then I think once you're large enough to support generalists again, you can start reintegrating that concept into the company. It's mm-hmm. hard when you're at that mid-size and you just need those really specific skill sets to come in. But when you're looking for specific skill sets, you you put less emphasis on the person that you're hiring. When you lose sight of that, it, it makes the culture struggle. And so Namaste Solar, as an employee-owned company, as a certified B Corp, as a company so committed to its culture, we've always included culture in the hiring process. Uh, and that that goes into the questions that you ask, but it also is in the structure of the interviews. We make a point to the degree possible that uh, certainly the team that's hiring for a new role interviews that person. And typically there's a couple of interviews with that team, or at least with maybe it starts with a hiring manager and then the team. But then we also send them out for a coffee meetup with others in the company who aren't maybe uh, directly on the team or who maybe are upstream or downstream from, from where that person will be working. But it's a really culturally focused conversation to help them understand what is important to Namaste Solar. How do we live out our values? How do you want to plug into that? Where, where do you see yourself in that? It's a part of making sure they understand what they're walking into. Because I, I think that hiring is in some sense like sales. You're setting expectations and you're trying to be realistic about this company that they're about to join. And because of the employee ownership model, joining the company wasn't just about butts and seats. It was about bringing in new business partners who were potentially going to be with us for years, for a really long time. We set expectations that if you join and become a co-owner, we, we want you to commit to this for, for like five years or more because being a business owner in the way that we try to practice it wasn't just a, a moniker on your business card. It was a real shared experience, sharing risk and reward in how we grow this thing. It, the stakes were high <laughs> as we were hiring for that type of role. Yeah, you've alluded to it a couple of times. I'd love to dive in there. The only, you know, I had Gary on the show from Sunlight and Power who talked about converting their company into uh, an employee-owned company in ESOP. I know that that has been the story of Namaste. Can you help those who maybe are unfamiliar with the idea of an employee-owned company or a cooperative, maybe disambiguate the two? And obviously, we'll get into amicus in a bit as well. But I'd love to just take a moment here and talk about the model of co-ownership. So there are several forms of employee ownership. ESOPs or employee stock ownership plans are probably the most common form of it. I think of ESOPs as almost an indirect form of employee ownership because there's actually an entity that is the ESOP that owns the company itself. The employees own the ESOP. So it's not a direct form of employee ownership. It's, it's kind of indirect. It's, it's still employee ownership, 100% but it's a not as direct a form of employee ownership as a cooperative is. A fundamental underpinning of the cooperative model, be it an employee-owned or a member-owned cooperative like Amicus O&M, is that each member, which in an employee-owned situation is the employee, owns one share in the company. And that one share entitles them to one vote. So it's a very egalitarian form of ownership that fit us really well. We actually converted to the cooperative model in 2011. So we were already five plus years in on the journey of employee ownership. And we had started out with a much more conventional paradigm where each of the employees could own uh, up to 10,000 shares in the company and each share the vote. But what we realized was that those early joiners ended up with a lot of shares when the shares were cheap. And then later joiners ended up with fewer shares because they were more expensive. And that led to this unintended power imbalance. Oh, yeah. And so we wanted to rectify that. That's not how we functioned. At an operational level, we had always been one person, one vote. But we wanted to bring the governance structure in line with that. And that's where becoming a cooperative fit us so well. You know, I think some people with an entrepreneurial mindset struggle with the idea of uh, cooperative ownership because there's a lower sense of control. How did you observe the three founders go through this process of deciding cooperative was the right model? And even how did they get compensated for the early years of, of work and labor they put in to build this company that, that many of us as entrepreneurs would think, well, I get an exit from this. I get a, I get a financial upside. Can you explain how that works? Yeah. So Namaste Solar started out on day one as an employee-owned company. So I was a co-owner on day one. 
that meant I, I bought my 10,000 shares in the company. So when we undertook the conversion to a cooperative, all of the shareholders had to go through that process of recognizing that they were giving up control because going from having 10,000 votes with my 10,000 shares to one vote with one share was a little bit of a emotional stretch. And so we had, it took us a year of exploring what this meant of lots of subcommittees doing research on how it could work. Uh, we had to go through a whole valuation process to decide what was a fair strike price for the company to buy those shares at and then sell us our new one share in the cooperative. It was quite a process. And I, I really fundamentally point to the, the heart that the co-founders brought to that from the beginning to set it up that way and to, to the business structure itself as a way to help all of us grow our investment. And that's one of the, I think, philosophical aspects of cooperatives that resonates so deeply with me is that it's not just a way to bring me in on decision-making, which is a very powerful thing in and of itself, but it's actually a way to redistribute wealth in the economy because people who are taking part in cooperative ownership see the benefit of that wealth. Whereas in so many conventional companies, it's only wealthy people that own shares. So you're working to expand their wealth, not your own. What a great retention model. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I look at, I mean, you know this story as well, but like Eric Nyman, for example, has been at, uh, and he's one of the, the, the shorter tenure folks at Sunlight Power. He's been there for the same as you, like 11, 12 years. In a time where our industry routinely, you see people cycle every two or three years. It's one of the most elegant ways to align a person's self-interest with the interest of the company. You don't have to do anything because when you're an investor in it, what is good for the company is good for you. What we also found was that it, in addition to the financial investment that people made, it usually came with an emotional investment. They care. There's a, I don't know how to explain. It's kind of like the difference between being in a long-term relationship where you live together and getting married. Like on the surface, it may not change things that much logistically, but there is a, a deepening the emotional commitment that, that you feel when someone becomes a co-owner, they're in it and they're really, you know, and you trust that alignment of interest because it's, it's just baked in. You know, I think that there's a vulnerability in a business that relies on people to just do the right thing altruistically, because if, if you don't line up those interests then there, you know, somebody may be sidetracked by uh, the need for personal gain, uh, which may take their interests out of alignment with the company. But that's one of the things I just love about employee ownership is it really just elegantly uh, brings everything into those parallel lines without having to do much else. One of the things that I want to just put a pin in and I'd love your perspective on is that level of commitment for me as an entrepreneur is something that every business owner wants to see from their team. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to find the right model. But one of the things that it made me think about as we were telling this story among ourselves, um, you know, in our, in our first call is the parallel, uh, I'll call it long-term relationship or partnership. And I'm in a marriage, you're in a marriage, but um, that's, that's just one way to think about long-term partnership for me, what you guys have created at Namaste and then at Amicus is a long-term values-driven partnership. You know, I just think there's something we need to recognize as an industry about the ability to stop looking at all the shiny objects and buckle down and do work. I feel so fortunate to have found my people so early on in my career. I think I've developed this theory that startup companies are this immersive experience that bonds people together in a similar way to when you go to college and you live in a dorm or a student housing for the first time being away from home. It's this immersive experience. And I imagine, I, I'm, I've, I don't have service experience, but I would imagine that joining the military would be something like that, where you're traveling to foreign places with a a squad, a team of people that you didn't know previously, you're all thrown together, but you sure as heck get to know each other fast. You know, there's a few of these examples in our lives that we can look at that are just this full body all the time, taking up all of your mental space and capacity uh, with this random group of people doing something, building something together. And 
that is very much what Namaste Solar was for me. It was just this full body immersive experience. And yeah, so fortunate that out of it has, has grown a community of friendships that go way deeper than just being business colleagues. Today, I still office at Namaste Solar and I sit in between two men that I have known and worked closely with for 14 years. And we've seen each other at our best and our worst. We've seen each other go through marriages and breakups and kids and family issues and parents' health struggles and like all those life events. We know each other at such a deeper level and those relationships will survive well beyond whatever professional affiliation we have, right? And I'm so fortunate to say the same of of my colleagues back dating to Solar Austin. You know, it, it was the same type of really bonding experience that we are still in regular touch with each other and our families all know each other. And it's a beautiful thing. All right, Solar Warriors. I hope that you are following along here. I am really grateful that you're here listening to all the way to the end of part one. Join us again on Thursday for part two of Amanda Bybee's story, where we'll go more into the Amicus Cooperative and uh, you'll get to hear more details about how she thinks about mentoring and uh, where she gets her information and education from. If you're eager to keep learning, and I know that you are, then you can find more resources and highlights from this discussion and every other discussion at the blog page at mysuncast.com. That's where we post the social media links, book recommendations, and more from this and every other interview. I also urge you, while you're there at mysuncast.com, you'll get one of those pop-ups that oftentimes you probably just click X on. If you would be so generous and kind as to give us your email, I won't abuse that, and I will use it as a method to reach out and let you know how you can engage further with the Suncast community. We have lots of resources and tools that we're developing and preparing and ways that we as a community can stay in touch, as I mentioned before. So I would encourage you to shoot me an email, nico at mysuncast.com, or just jump on our email subscriber list there at mysuncast while you are visiting the website. And of course, tune in again Thursday, where we'll be bringing part two of Amanda Bybee interview to you. Please take care of yourself, take care of your neighbors, show kindness, show respect, stay the F home (laughs) and help us uh, as a community move forward while we endure this difficult time during COVID-19. But also remember, you have Suncast as a place, a refuge where you can lift up your spirit. You can uh, learn more about how uh, coming out of this trial, you can grow your career, your personal uh, endeavors, your business, etc. And as such, I believe you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Mm-hmm.